Today we're continuing our study in Genesis. Uh, last week we started uh, first, our first message in Noah. Uh, today will be our second, and then we'll finish it up next week with a third. And so last week we looked at how uh, God is going to judge the world for its evil by sending a flood to wipe out everything. Everything except for Noah and his family and a pair of each kind of animal. There's this remnant that would be left. And this remnant that was left was going to be uh, in charge of the recreation of the world. So the flood happens and we get to our text today of what life's going to be like when they walk outside of the boat. And think about what life must have been like when they emerged from this boat that they'd been in for 40 days. I'm sure they, they look around and they see the devastation that's left by the flood. Creation that they knew before has now turned to chaos. As the flood has wiped out the fields of crops, the homes, the forests, everything's laid waste. But what, 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 are, they, what, what are they looking at when they look at it? I, 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 I expect them to be super happy. I mean, they don't have to live in such cor- close quarters with stinky animals anymore. Their boat actually held up. They don't have to be with those evil people who have been wiped out anymore. It looks like every opportunity is right at their fingertips, doesn't it? And in many ways, this theme reminds me of an article I read a really long time ago about POWs who had been, re- been released after the Vietnam War. 591 prisoners were released in 1973 from Southeast Asia. It all happened because the Paris Peace Accords had been signed and it ended U.S. military's involvement in Vietnam. And can you imagine being one of those 591 POWs walking onto American soil after having been captured for up to nine years? I mean, wouldn't it seem like every opportunity was theirs? With all the freedom they've been given. And that might be what it might seem to be, but their re-entry would be quite a challenge. The military knew it, so they put together a program to help them reintegrate into society. And they really focused on three issues. The first was their bodies. I mean, they, 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 their physical health was not great. They had been tortured. They had been, their, their wounds had improperly healed. They had been malnourished. They had various kinds of diseases, so no surprise that their bodies are a mess. They lived in these shelters with little protection from extreme climate conditions. They received poor nutrition. They were chained and imprisoned in these small cages. So their bodies they needed rest, they needed treatment. Another major issue they had was families. Now, 590 of these 591 POWs were men. When they walked back into their families, if they were a father, their, their kids were probably to- toddlers when they left, and now they're preteens. Difficult transition. Their women, their wives, they were in a tough spot, weren't they? I mean, their husbands, they didn't know if they were dead or alive. They didn't know if they were a wife or a widow. They didn't know how they were supposed to move on. And the women, oftentimes, they were locked in these prisons of loneliness and fear and dread. And they faced a life of unknown, so many of them chose to remarry. So can you imagine being a POW walking into your house and your wife is no really no longer really your wife. Terrible. And think about their careers. They'd been locked up in these small cages for many of them for multiple years. And while they're in the, these cages, you've 
got their peers who are receiving leadership training, they're getting professional educations, they're taking prestigious assignments. So it seems like life has escaped the POWs, that they, they've fallen behind. So these POWs returning, they, 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 they should be all good, right? I mean, they're not imprisoned anymore. Isn't that what you would expect? They're reunited with family. The world seems to be wide open to them, but it's also going to be fraught with difficulty. And I think the same is true for Noah. I mean, yeah, there's no more evil people. They don't have to be cooped up in this boat anymore. It seems like a fresh start, but Noah knows this isn't Eden. So what should Noah expect? What should his family expect into this new world? And I think this is really relevant for many of us. Many of us, we go through these seasons of trial, and we're always like, just when we get on the other side of this, life's going to be all right. And isn't that the way you felt about COVID? It was like, man, once the vaccine is widespread, we'll all be all right. Once everybody's been infected, we're going to be all right. Life is going to go back to normal. What should we expect? And I think our passage will help us. We're going to start in chapter 8, verse 20, and read through chapter 9, verse 17. It's kind of long, but hang in there with us. And then Noah built an altar to the Lord. And he took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird, and he offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, they shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered." For every moving thing that lives shall be food for you, and as I give you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. So whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And you... Be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. And God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as come out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again Shall there be a flood to destroy the earth? And God said this, said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. And when the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The word of the Lord. 
So here are the areas uh, that we need to have proper expectations for life after trial. And they're all about relationships. It's relationship with creation, relationship with each other, relationship with our fellow mankind, and then relationship with God. We're going to look at each of those. So let's start with relationship with creation. I mean, remember back several weeks ago and. We were going through Genesis chapter 1, and we saw that at the end of every creation day, God, God said that he saw all that he had made, and it was good, right? It wasn't just the people who were good at the end of day 6. It was all the previous things that God had made the first five days, that they were good too. So it's no surprise that when God wants to redo, when he wants to restart, he wants to reset all of creation, that it's not just mankind who are on this boat. That he wants to save the animals too, because when he made them, he said that they were good. So now they get off the boat, and God promises that he will never again destroy not just all people, but he won't destroy all living creatures ever again. And he's so insistent on having this lush physical world that God's like a broken record repeating himself. I mean, I just read those verses with you, those 20-ish verses. And when I read them for the first time on Monday, I was like, gosh, God's just saying the same daggum thing ever, over and over and over. The same words, every, all, uh, made in his image, covenant. These themes are going, uh, going over and over and over but especially this theme of every living creature. You see in chapter 9, verse 2, every creature. Verse 3, every living thing. Verse 5, every beast. Verse 10, every living creature. Verse 12, every living creature. Verse 15, every living creature. Verse 16, every living creature. Verse 17, all flesh. So it's obvious that God cares about all things... Therefore, Noah's got to care about them as well. Noah's not going to be able to hole up and be a monk who only prays and only offers sacrifices. He's not going to be able to withdraw from real life. He's not going to be able to take a break after building a boat for 120 years and then being on it for 40 days during the storm. He's going to have to be involved in the world. And you see it. You see it in verse 1 and verse 7 with the command, be fruitful and multiply. And when we looked at that phrase way back several weeks ago from Genesis chapter 1, we saw that, it, that, that, that phrase, be fruitful and multiply, is not mostly about sexual fulfillment. It's not even mostly about building a family, though that's what it sounds like. It's mostly about stewardship. And so now these image bearers, when you be fruitful and multiply, what are you making? You're making more image bearers, more who can cultivate creation. I mean, think about what they're looking at when they get off the boat. This isn't a blank canvas here. This is complete devastation that they're going to have to clean things up, organize them, and make creation productive. They're going to have to gather up the debris. They're going to have to burn it. They're going to have to clear space for farming. They're going to have to build their homes. This is the world that God cares about, and he's given mankind, Noah and his family, the unique role to care for it on his behalf. So they're stewards. They're not owners. That's their relationship with creation. And so this passage has a lot of implications for me and you. We could talk about our jobs right here, couldn't we? I mean, all work matters, not just those that are in the helping professions. I mean, think about all the language we use to talk about our jobs. We talk about being a teacher, doing something that really matters. And it does matter. 
Talk about being in medicine in some way or another, as a nurse, as a physician, as a, uh, as, as a physical therapist. I, I don't know, whatever, all those medical professions. And we think, oh, that really matters because we're really helping people. And then those of us who are in ministry, we take it to the extreme and say, we're doing the only thing that really matters because it's eternal. We're dealing with people's souls, right? If you look at this text, that's not what's going on here. It's not just the helping professions, not just the ones that directly work with human beings. It's anything that has to do with creation. It all matters. But what I want to spend most of our time on, talking about our relationship with creation, is talking about how we view the environment. See, it's clear that we can't exploit natural resources, that they're ours for the taking. I mean, you kind of see it in verse 3 when God says you can eat all the animals. Kind of like giving them a hunting license right there. But then in verse 4, he limits their consumption. Well, the same goes for us. When we think about how we use the minerals and the chemicals, how we treat plants, how we farm, how we view endangered species. Now, I'm not calling for you to, get, to be a card-carrying hippie. That's not what I'm trying to do. A lot of environmental issues are very complex, much more complex than they're presented in the media. They require thoughtful engagement. But many of us, we're dismissive of the things like Earth Day. We think it's silly. We think it's inconsequential. But why do we do that? Is it because many of us have built our identity on being a conservative, and conservatives aren't typically, are typically skeptical of environmental issues, so we just brush it all off as, that's for the granola folks. And I think that's sad. But let me be clear, liberals, you're not off the hook either. See, many Christians on the left, they'll advocate for ecological issues. And it's really just a way of virtue signaling their politics. All they're doing is advocating. They're un, un, unwilling to get involved and to care about what God cares about and see, see themselves as Christians as the solution, not politics. It's going to require faithful service, this stewardship of creation that we've been giving. So that's what, we, that's what Noah should expect when he walks out the ark. He's going to have to deal with stuff. He's going to have to be involved in the world. As Christians, we are too. On the other side of peril, we have to look out and see our responsibility to cultivate creation. The other relationship we have is with mankind. And there's two truths that God really wants to drill into Noah here. The first one you see in 821. In 821, uh, it says, For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Now, Noah didn't say this. God did. And I think Noah was like, I get it. I just spent 40 days in real close proximity to my family. I see that the sin in their heart, and I see the sin in my own. I can't imagine going on a 40-day vacation with my family. That's what Noah had to do here. Yes, it's a reset. Yes, it's a do-over. But he's not walking out into Eden. There's evil in the hearts of men and women. It's so evil that verses 5 and 6 say that murder is going to be a reality in this new world. God's very clear. He's not just telling them it is what it is. God is saying, I won't tolerate it. And he gives a reason he won't tolerate it at the end of verse 6. At the end of verse 6, the grounds, the reason for why people should not be murdered is that they're made in God's image 
So these two things that he's got to know about mankind, he has to know from 821 that every intention of their heart from their youth is evil. But on the other hand, he's got to view all as image bearers. So for you and for me, we shouldn't be surprised at the corruption that we see on the news, the perversity that we see in our everyday lives, the, the heinousness that we discover in our thoughts and words and deeds, because every intention of every thought is evil for all mankind. But on the other hand, you, you've got to see that we're made in God's image, that all are to be treated with dignity. You can't come up with criteria, criteria for those you treat poorly and those you treat with respect. And we all do this. We do it unconsciously. I mean, think about it. Wouldn't you agree that men and women who are deemed to be attractive have an advantage over those men and women who are deemed not to be attractive? See, men and women are attractive. They're not like image bearers plus. And those who are not deemed attractive are image bearers minus. They're just image bearers. Or think about rich people. If you were to talk to people who have considerable means, what you would find out is that most people just want to use them and not know them. That most people just want to get in their vicinity so they might enjoy their money, and rich people will tell you that they're not treated as image bearers. No one cares about their story. No one cares about what they're passionate about. No one wants to know about their struggle. They're using them. Or think about children. See, children, they're not just one-fourth image bearers who become four-fourth image bearers when they turn 18. They're always an image bearer. Think about the poor. When we come across the poor, those who live on the streets, those who are underhoused, we're overcome with our fear. So we either ignore them or we give them a little bit of money. But brother and sister, they need more than money. They need you to learn their name. They need you not just to grab a meal for them. They need you to grab a meal for both of you and for you to sit down and talk to them. See, they're image bearers. They're not solutions to be solved with money devoid of a relationship with them. The poor. What about those victims of our sexual lust? Whether it's porn or it's a hookup or it's lust in general. The thing that all those forms of sexual immorality have in common is that they objectify other human beings. We simplify them as victims that, who only have bodies that we receive pleasure from without seeing them in all their humanity. So do you see how this doctrine of the image of God informs our whole lives? It touches everything. And when you combine it with the depravity that exists within each person, you realize how much we need wisdom and how much we need love. And that's what Noah is going to need as he navigates this new world. Let me give you a word of caution uh, please don't leave here and say, I'm going to have a good relationship with creation, Marsh. You know that blue garbage can outside my house? I'm going to fill that thing up from now on. That's what I'm going to be about. When I go on a walk, I'm going to start picking up trash. You might be saying, I'm going to, have a good, good, I'm going to be a good steward with my job and my money and my time. I'm going to cultivate a life of beauty in this physical world. I'm going to show dignity to every person I meet, rich or poor, Red or blue, young or old, people with disabilities, people without disabilities. I'm going to be like Noah. I'm going to do all the God commands. Well, if you do, I need to give you a firm warning. You're going to peter out quick. 
your motivational tank is going to be hit empty fast. Because you need to get a different resource, a resource that is outside of you. And it's the resource of grace, God's grace. And that's how God is presented in this passage. And you see grace all over the place in our text. We all start by looking at the first verse, 820. In 8.20, Noah comes out of the boat and the first thing he does is he worships. And he's got plenty of reasons to. God's kept him. He's alive. He's been protected. So he worships. He doesn't come out of the boat and start working. He doesn't start with a big party for his family. Because he knows the most important relationship he has is with God. He doesn't think like most of us about God. He, he's not worried about God doing this whole flood thing again because in Genesis 6:18, before the flood, God had entered into a saving relationship with Noah and his family. He'd covenanted with Noah. And so Noah understood that God was a God of grace, so he worships. This is the first clue of what their relationship's going to be like. The next clue is found in the covenant, the details of it. As you look through it, you'll see that God promises to continue to protect all the world and Noah's family without requiring anything from them. They don't have to agree to the covenant for it to go into an effect. They don't have to do anything to maintain it. And that's a good thing because 821 still exists, that there's evil in their hearts. It's stunning grace. But look at another place. Do you notice how many times God uses the word covenant in verses 11 to 17? Seven times. And he uses it so often that it's hard to read for us as the modern reader. But it's crystal clear. It's crystal clear what the author is trying to do here. Seven is a perfect number. And using it seven times in seven verses, it indicates the fullness of God's commitment to wicked people. He promises them security and peace. Grace again. But did you notice the bow? I don't know, maybe if you're familiar with this story, you thought, why does it say bow instead of rainbow? I thought it was a rainbow that was up in the sky. A bow? Well, here's the reason it's translated bow. The word for that occurs 75 times in the Old Testament, and every single time except here, it's referring to a weapon of war. Like bow and arrow, not like a bow in your hair. And God hangs this rainbow in the sky, and it's pointed upward. If the bow in the sky were pointed downward, it would indicate that God could pull the bow back and execute judgment on mankind once again. But God no longer targets the human race. He promises them security and peace. And in fact, the bow is pointed upward toward heaven. Because God would be the one who would have to absorb the painful arrow. See, in order to keep the commitment with wicked people, it's going to require him not to overlook their sin but to pay for it. And he paid for it on the cross. He sends his son. And on the cross, we see judgment and mercy meet. We see Jesus absorb the justice of God so that we could experience only his mercy and grace. And that's what, we, that's what you see when you look at the cross. You see judgment, you see grace. When you see the rainbow, you see this vast array of colors and a weapon of war. Grace, judgment, meet at the cross. And so what Jesus is doing for us today is that he's shining a light in 2023 back on the cross. 
And we see the shadows of the cross here in Genesis 8 and 9. And he's doing it so that you would be wooed once more to come home. If you find yourself lonely, if you find yourself lost, if you find yourself sad, God wants to be your shelter. He wants to be a home for you in the midst of a sick and weary world. He shined this light back to woo you so that you would come out of your bondage and that you would be set free. You'd come out of your bondage of objecting people, objectifying them, so you might love them. He's doing it so that in all of your guilt, in all of your shame, that you could be found as faultless and innocent in his sight because of what he's done on your behalf. And so, brother and sister, will you come home? Will you be free? Will you enjoy the innocence that's found in the gospel? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, uh, this text, this surprising text. Uh, Lord, that even though every intention of our heart is evil, Lord, that you love us and you promise us not just protection, but you promise us relationship. So, Lord, I pray we would enjoy that uh, here at this table. In Christ's name, amen.